re-wish you Happy New Year. It's 2017, and I say this at the beginning of each talk uh, when I get to this time of the year. Uh, it's funny. Each year I find myself repeating this phrase more regularly as I get older because each passing year seems to come more quickly than the last. I don't know if you've experienced this, but um, it just seems like this month happens pretty frequently, and it is hard to believe that 2016 is over, and we are full-blown now you know, into the second week of 2017. And so this is an interesting time in the life of people. In our culture, the new year is a time where lots of stuff bubbles to the surface. You start seeing people examining their lives. Uh, there's the famous old world resolution. You know, everybody kind of right now is thinking a little bit about where they've been and where they want to go. And there really is a sociological reason for this. As we get older, okay, whether you are 20 or 60 or 80, as we get older, we are subtly reminded in the depths of our hearts that our time on earth is not forever. And I think if you are a sane and sensible human being, what happens is, is you want to make the most of your time, right? You don't want to end your life wishing you could have done everything differently. And so the new year is a time where life changes truly on everybody's mind. And that's why I wanted to share this teaching with you this morning from the Apostle Paul in Philippians. We are going to full-blown jump back into our Philippians series, and we'll wrap this up and then move into something new just around the time of Easter. But we're going we're to skip ahead a little bit and look at Philippians chapter 3 today, because this is a, a super important teaching where Paul challenges us to think about whether our hearts are focused on the right things or, or not. And that's important, since this is a question people are asking right now in our world. I think it makes sense for us to spend some time addressing it. What's great about the teaching today is that Paul doesn't just pop the question to us. He actually gives us some concrete action steps to, to answer the question and to act upon them. So in other words, what happens today is we'll look at three ideas. This is more than we usually look at on a Sunday. Usually we revolve around two ideas, but this is a packed text. And he's going to give us three ideas that really help us to answer the question whether or not we're focused on the right things for those of us pursuing Jesus. It's a new resolution you might consider, but one that has a much deeper root than just a traditional resolution. It's a resolution connected to the, the grace and the goodness of God, our Father in heaven. So the scripture teaches us today that there are some very important things we must be doing. If in our priority list for 2017, I'm sure we all have them or are in the process of developing them. If we have penned our lists out or noted our lists on paper, but guiding those priorities is not the person of Jesus, then we already have a problem for those of us that follow Christ. So based on this idea, I guess what I'm, I'm saying this morning is, is I want you to add a resolution uh, to your 2017 list. And the word add might actually be too gentle. I want you to add the resolution that really should define all of your resolutions. And it is simply this. When you think about this upcoming year, ask yourself, have you asked God and are you making it a personal priority to till the soil of your heart in such a way that it creates a nutrient-rich environment for the grace of Jesus to grow in you, to take root for the first time, or to grow more deeply. That is a priority that defines all priorities. And practically speaking, Paul tells us there are three critical things your heart must be focused on if you're going to grow in your faith like that. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Three ideas. If you want to grow in Jesus in 2017, these things have to be present in your life. And the first is this. If you want to grow in Jesus in 2017, you must focus on having a humble heart. You do not grow without humility. And I'll explain why. Because you won't think you have to grow if you lack humility. And Paul teaches us this in Philippians 3.12. So this is a pretty accomplished dude. And here's what he says. Not that I have already obtained all of this, or have already arrived at my goal. And what he's talking about here is perfection in the pursuit of Jesus. He says, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus 
took hold of me. Now, this is a pretty interesting statement because here Paul is using his own life. He kind of puts himself on the, on the cutting block for us to analyze. He is using his own life to remind the Christian that everyone always has room to grow on their journey with Jesus. There is never a time or place in our life where we do not have room to grow. And think about this. If, for those of you who study the scripture, this is an important and somewhat incredible statement from the Apostle Paul. Because more than anyone in the New Testament, Paul had the right to claim that he had arrived because of his religious accomplishments. This is a guy who, who really is pretty amazing. So the backdrop for his teaching precedes what we're studying, excuse me, follows what we're studying today. In verses 4 through 6, Paul tells us this interesting thing. He gives us this pretty powerful religious resume. Excuse me. And he tells us that amongst men, there is no greater success story when it comes to faith. So this is a guy who is very accomplished. He's a great A Pharisee. Uh, According to him, he has the best schooling that the world could offer him at the time. When it comes to his morality and spirituality, he is almost perfect, righteous in all ways, unrivaled in his ability to know the law, the Jewish law, and to proclaim it. And he gives us this lengthy resume, and then he he wraps up the whole of his life by using one word. He says, I am faultless. Okay, Pretty proud, right? Pretty arrogant. But there's a deep gospel root in where he's going with this. If the end of his teaching was the word faultless, we probably would not be studying this today. Because in that word, Paul builds himself up, and he begins to use something that's very powerful in the ancient world. He uses a line of reasoning that would have absolutely rocked the world he was speaking to. In the Greek world, which is where Paul is teaching right now, it's very much what's known as an honor-shame culture. And what happens is, uh, this, in that cultural world, it is believed that there's only a certain amount of honor that goes around in a community. And so when people would arrive at these types of stature points in their lives, they would truly be celebrated. People like this were considered pretty amazing. So Paul builds himself up. He essentially, to his audience, garners all the honor. He says, I'm an amazing person, which is incredibly valued in the world that he lives in. But then he goes on and he does something very different. He explains how all that honor actually meant nothing. He, he, it's like he builds everybody up on this roller coaster, and then will later teach us that. But what mattered most is not who he was. What mattered most is who Jesus became in him. And so he, he diverts the honor to the person who deserves it most. And that's why in this word, faultless, there is a personal irony that he's using to teach us something. He's saying, listen, if there ever was a person who had the right to claim they were perfect or they had arrived in the faith, it was me, the honor theme, right? Yet he uses that resume then to warn us all how wrong this type of thinking is. He goes on to tell us that this deep-seated attitude is actually a problem in pursuing Jesus and growing in him. It actually is the root of major sin, frankly. And it's a sin we've been redeemed from. It is a sin we can all fall prey to if we're not careful. And it is this idea of spiritual pride. And that's why I open by saying, listen, you, you can't grow in Jesus if you lack humility because you won't think you need to grow in Jesus if you are without humility. You'll think you're exactly where you need to be. But for Christians, there's always room to grow. And so if you're at the place where you think you've spiritually arrived in your faith, what, can, what happens is, is you can guarantee you're never, you're never going to arrive. And in the Bible, I'm sure... This is taught regularly. You can see this in the greats of the men and women who serve God. There's humility. And in your own experiences, I am sure you've seen the same thing. The people who are humble, the people who really press into Jesus, are the people whom we most want to be like. In your own experiences, I'm sure you've come across people on both sides of this fence. 
you've probably seen some people, and maybe even at times, you know, we're we're not above this. There are times when we might even suffer from this, where we believe we've attained some kind of a moral or, or spiritual perfection that oftentimes leads us to believe we are better than other people. And if you've ever been around a person who thinks this way, it's a hard person to be around because you constantly feel like they are looking down on you, like the, the barrel of their nose is pointed down on you because they think you are lesser of a person in Christ. And in a very concrete way, they are, are walking contradictions. This attitude is contrary to the gospel of Jesus. Because on one side of the coin, what happens is people will somewhat zealously argue that it is in Christ alone that a person finds favor and worth in God. You know, this is one of the battle cries of the Christian faith. It's in Jesus alone. It's one of the hallmarks of the Reformation. You know, Christ alone is the way that we get to the Father. So what happens is, theologically, somebody will believe this and they'll even verbalize it. However, the actions in their lives can oftentimes be contradictory to that truth. They say one thing but practice another. Because they begin to believe that they live their lives... Uh, in other words, God sort of owes them something. What happens is, is they're so good, they're so righteous, they're so perfect, that God owes them favor. Because of what they do, God needs them. And this is a bit of a dangerous belief, because it's a subtle way of putting God in debt to you, when the truth is that it's actually the other way around. What happens is, when you begin to recognize grace, you recognize there was an amazing debt paid by Jesus, our Savior. And that cannot be earned or merited and that's the beauty of the Christian faith is that we get to live in the grace and grow in it without the pressure of this. So Paul tells us this. This is a guy who, if anybody could have earned it, it was him. But he's really telling us to be careful of the earned complex. Paul is telling us this with a pretty unique vantage point. He's a Pharisee who, out of all the guys in the New Testament, were the folks who kind of believe this in the strongest ways. He is literally telling us, listen, I've, I've, I, one of the greats in God, right, says, I have been down the road of self-righteousness. I have been down the road where I have seen myself as, as greater than who I actually am. And, and hear me, I'm not saying you're not great. I'm actually trying to say, recognize who you are great in. There's something very different there. When greatness is put in you by Christ, it, there's literally an endless litany of things you can do for God. When greatness is assigned to ourselves, by ourselves, then what happens is we walk the road of pride. And we likely will walk away from God, even if we have some form of religious shell. The Pharisees deeply believe this, and Paul is, or at least was, a Pharisee. And what happens is, they drift very, very far from God. They don't grow in Him. They actually, their stature in Him lessens, because they learn to love themselves more than they love their Father in heaven, and they learn to love themselves more than they love their neighbor, which is the direct, it's a direct violation of the two greatest commandments we have in the New Testament. And they don't end up earning God's grace. What happens is, is they, they deserve God's wrath. That's why Jesus is so hard on the Pharisees. Now, we could just say that this is an attitude that existed in Paul's day. We could say that. But the truth is that pride still exists in our modern day, in all arenas of life, not just in the Christian faith. And wherever you, can, wherever you find it, you can just about guarantee that the grace of God in Jesus is going to be absent. You, you can't be proud in yourself and, and relying on the grace of God. Those two things are, are constantly at odds with each other. And that's why Paul reminds the Christian that believing you've arrived means you're missing Jesus. That's the simple summation of this first idea. If you think you've arrived, you're very likely missing Jesus because you don't arrive without him. Now, on the contrary, there is a, a beauty in, in humility. 
once you know you can't be this, you can't earn this, you can't attain this kind of perfection he's speaking about, you start to recognize that there actually is somebody who can. And his name is Christ. And so it's not, it's not a statement that says you're never going to be whatever that is. It's a statement that says you can be so long as you are being in, in Jesus Christ. All growth in the Christian faith, all maturity in the Christian faith is rooted in that truth. And so just like the Pharisees, if we get to the place where we think we've, we've won the race of faith, we're likely going to stop running it. If we stop running the race, which is the metaphor Paul uses here, you'll never get the prize. And the prize is not perfection. The prize is not look at me. The prize is a growing and more intimate knowledge of Jesus. The prize is knowing God more deeply. Because deep down in your heart, what will happen is you will recognize you do need a Savior. And you will start to rest in the truth and the grace of Christ. And that is the point of Paul's teaching. And I want to share with you a quote uh, from a pretty well-known New Testament scholar named F.F. F. Bruce. It will be behind me. When speaking of this passage in Paul's life, he says this. Paul illustrates the true nature of what it means to be Christian by using his own life. His growing knowledge of Christ, his sharing here and now, both in the sufferings and in the power of his risen life, are bringing him nearer the goal. But, here's the important thing, he's moving towards arrival, right? But, so long as he is in the body, that goal still lies ahead. And what he means by that is, so long as Paul is still human and under heaven, he is still in the body, he's still in the flesh, and the goal is not utterly attainable. He will never in this life attain perfection in the sense that no further spiritual progress is possible and nothing is left to aim at beyond the point he has reached. And here's the key. The purpose for which Christ Jesus took hold of him on the Damascus road remains for Paul to grasp. And so the idea here is the guy who by earthly standards arrived tells us by heavenly standards, I've not arrived. And arrival only comes to fruition when I'm hanging under the coattails of my Savior. That's truly arrival. And so you see, humility is the foundation of all the growth in Christianity. Humility is the foundation of the faith. It takes a humble recognition to say, I need Christ, to live in Him and to press in Him. And in a great way, this humility is what makes us strong. I don't believe in Christian weakness. I believe that we are strong because the power of God rests in us. So don't see humility as a weak word. See it as a word that actually it, it creates a conduit in our lives for God to pipe his power into us. It is the foundation of all Paul's maturity. It's what it is built on. And if you and I want to grow in Jesus this year, it has to be ours too. So this morning as we move into response time here in a few minutes, ask yourself... Am I humble? Am I at a place where when I've thought about my life in 2017, I've actually said, these are some areas I want to grow in. These are some areas I want to, I want to trust in God but labor towards for growth. Super important. First thing we learn is humility precedes growth. Second thing Paul tells us here is if you want to grow, and I'm obviously piping a year into this, if you want to grow in Jesus in 2017, you must focus your heart on God's future, not your past. Listen to what he says in Philippians 3.13. After telling us about the importance of humility, he says, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. He reiterates what he said. But one thing I do, I forget what is behind, and I strain toward what is ahead. Now, throughout this whole teaching, Paul is using the metaphor of running a race to describe how we are to live the Christian faith. 
And that's a very common theme in the Bible. The, the idea of the race is one that is, it's, it, there's so much imagery in that, that is profound and applicable to how we understand the Christian faith. It's a long haul, more like a marathon than it is a, you know, a 100-yard sprint. And this is an interesting concept for me because when I was in high school, I, I played a few sports. Wrestling was one of my main ones. It was my main one. But for two years, I ran track and field also. And so uh, for those of you who ran track or had any kind of experience with that or even watch it during the Olympics, there's a unique connection here. And so my, my two events in track were uh, pole vaulting, and I dabbled in some of the shorter relay races, the mile relay and then a couple of hundred-yard dashes. And so to, to my surprise, uh, when it came to running, running track, which I had never done before in my life, what I recognized was we, we spent just as much time you know, running. That's obviously a big thing is learning how to run. But we would spend equal amounts of time disciplining ourselves, not looking back at the competition while we were running. I mean, it was amazing how the default position of people when they first start running track is to be looking everywhere but where they should be looking, which is straightforward. And so our coaches would constantly drill into us and ridicule us and penalize us when we were, when we were turned around running. And this was especially true when you were about to receive a baton relay. Now, this might sound a little ridiculous if you've not run track, but think about this. We spent more time practicing how to catch that metal stick, almost sometimes more time doing that than we actually did running the lengths of these actual races. And here's why. It is totally counterintuitive when you're running a competitive race, at least in the outset of running, to not want to see what is going on around you. Um, I coached baseball for years here locally in the city when my son played. It was, it's one of my favorite sports. And I can tell you the same is true with these 7- and 8-year-olds, uh, 9, 10, 11-year-olds. When they first start playing baseball, when they hit the ball, they run to first base looking behind them at where the ball is going. And I don't know if you've ever tried to run looking behind you, but you cannot do it very well. It is slow, and you stumble, and you might even fall. But the hunch is to, is to trust in what you can see. But in this case, trusting what you see actually undermines the goal. And so it's super hard to not want to look back at the person running at full speed as they try to stick a metal stick in your hand. You, you want to know where your competition is, but focusing on that actually causes you to lose the race. For two main reasons. Uh, if you're trying to catch a baton, looking back increases your chances of dropping it. Because as you're looking back, you're running like this, right? And if you've hit a fault line, you're out of the race. So the person behind you is like trying to plant this thing in your hand, but your hand is moving 8 to 10 inches in each direction. It's impossible. So you run fast and keep your arms stiff as a board, and they slap it in your hand. And the second is that it's completely impossible. Try this today if you have health insurance in the parking lot of the theater. Run full speed. Looking back, your body's not even going to let you do it, right? Because your body knows you're going you're gonna to have a problem. I, I saw this, the physics of this, when I was in junior high school in New York. I'll never forget this. I had this good friend named Jose, and we were playing like catch in the street. Everybody was running around, goofing off. And Jose was racing away from a person that was chasing him. And he turned around to look at the person who was chasing him. I was standing on the sidewalk watching this happen in the street. And he ran full speed into a parked car. Okay, he, he hit the car and then fell down. And uh, it was funny. Uh, Jose was physically scarred, but I think we I think we emotionally scarred him for life because we made fun of him for like 10 years after that. And we told him that he was the only kid in Brooklyn we ever knew that got hit by a parked car. Like literally he was that guy. And it was it was terrible. But he was hurt because he was bolting, looking behind him, just laid himself flat out. The cars don't move when humans hit them. Right. 
And so it's a perfect example of why looking back is a problem when you're trying to run a race. When you look back, you lose your way going forward. And when I say looking back, I'm not, I'm not saying we should not be contemplative about our past. What I am saying, though, is that if ever we get to the place where we're so focused on what has happened that we stop looking to the future, we're not going to grow anymore. And so a competitor running a race doesn't look back to see what's going on because they know their sole chance of winning the race is based on their ability to keep their eyes on the finish line in front of them. And here is why this metaphor is so important for us. It describes a spiritual reality for the way we're supposed to live. It's a super common story for people to be unable to move forward in their lives because there are things in their past holding them back. There's a deep root to what Paul teaches us here. It's sort of like a ball and chain cuffed to their ankle, making them, uh, it, it paralyzes them, frankly, is what happens. It makes it impossible sometimes for them to take steps forward. So for the Christian, when you focus on that stuff, you will take your eyes off Jesus. You know, marry the analogy of the race. You can't move forward if you're focused solely on what has happened behind you. You're going to lose your life bearings. And I want to very briefly share with you three very common lookbacks. I mean, I will be brief, but don't let brevity uh, confuse the importance of what I'm about to say. There are three lookbacks that are common pitfalls for us, and we need to avoid them if we want to move forward in our lives with Jesus this year. And this is true for our church. We have great plans for years 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, but we cannot accomplish them unless our eyes are fixed in that direction. So the first one is this. Some people can't move forward in life because they cannot stop dwelling on their past failures. They just can't. And so if you're the person, and I mean this very gently, if you're the person who lives in fear of the future because of your past failures, you are looking the wrong way. It is no secret in America, I've, I've said this before, that we like a good success story. It is the thing we celebrate the most. You never see, I, I've said this a hundred times, you never see Facebook posts or selfies where people are like, just got laid off. That doesn't ever happen, right? Ever. Just got a demotion, doesn't happen, didn't get the interview. That is never on Facebook, hardly ever, right? What is always on Facebook or any of the social media venues we use and the news, it's, it's the celebration of what is happening. It's the progress and the success. The problem with this is that every success story almost always happens. And I would like to say always happens. But I can't say that because I cannot honestly analyze every single situation that's ever taken place in the world. But I can say pretty confidently, like 99.999%, every success story happens on the heels of hardship and failure. You don't typically arrive at success. You never hear the greats, whether it is in business or any type of discipline in our world. Uh, even raising families, you never hear people who celebrate success. My kids grew up and they love God. There's a slew of hardships and failures that, that are behind that. That's part of what creates the success. That's just the part we choose to forget, though. And I'll give you a good example. I shared this with you five years ago, and I know you all listen to my sermons, the backlog of them on the web regularly, so you'll remember this. Any of you guys remember a guy named Steve Jobs? Yeah, some of you are not even listening to my sermon right now because you're playing Candy Crush on the device that he's created for you in your lap, right? Uh, so this dude, he, he's, a, he's a marvel. He created the most dominant technology company in the world to this day still. And in 2011, he, he died, right? He died from cancer. And the reason people were so enamored with him is because he built the company Apple, the most powerful technology company in the world. Everybody knows that part of his story. But what most people don't know is what led to that, what happened prior to that. So here's what happened prior. Here's the brief story. 
He starts a company in the 70s in, in his garage with a guy named Steve Wozniak uh, called, uh, it's not even really called Apple at the beginning, but it gets to that point in the 70s. And then after running the company for approximately 15 years, his board of director fires him. Nobody really knows this part. His, his dream is taken away from him. And so before he succeeds with what we revel in today, he fails a ton. There's a reason they let him go. And in his life, he never loses sight of the dream. He, he does not afford that hardship, the power of holding him back. In fact, it becomes somewhat of a catalyst for him to press on. And so after that failure, he goes on and he starts two other companies. A small one you might have heard of named Pixar. Right? This is essentially a company who's been creating uh, children's animation films and like, hijacking the minds of our kids for the last 20 years. He creates this thing called Pixar, which changes the world in a different way. And then he creates a second company, which unless you read tech, you probably have never heard of. It's a company called Next. You haven't heard of it from that title, but Next is the company that actually built the company you use today in your hand, Apple. Next is such a, a prominent technological platform that the board, basically the company that is still Apple, which is flailing now, looks at this and they say, we have to buy this technology because without it, there isn't going to be an Apple anymore. And in buying the technology, they buy Steve Jobs back and he becomes the head, the, the flagship leader of the company again. They rehire him as they take his technology. And then what happens is what we know today, you know, just a completely dominant technological company. And it is a great example of a person who never takes his eyes off the prize. And his prize is to essentially change the world through technology. Think about our prize, though, right? I mean, it's pretty amazing when you think about the fact that Jesus wants to change the world through us. And not that I don't care about Apple. Our computer would, I mean, our church would have trouble running without it. Everything we use is integrated into that system. But what I'm saying is, is that this was a person who was so enamored with changing the world through a technology platform. What does it say about us if we lack the vision and the foresight to want to see God work in the world through us? We have a greater platform for change because we have a Savior who wants to bring it about in our lives and in the world. And there's something we can learn about this. There's something we can learn from this story. The details of it at this point are immaterial. The, the, the grandiose idea of it is what is important. Remove the name Steve Jobs for a moment from your head and stick yourself into what I'm about to say. One of the promises of God is that he will use every success and every hardship in your life for his glory and, and for our good. None of these things escape his ability to use, and in fact, sometimes are direct results of what he wants to use in our lives. And a mature Christian knows when you keep your eyes on Jesus, the struggles you feel today, sometimes the ones that ruin our lives, at least we feel that way, they have the miraculous ability to be instrumental in what changes our life tomorrow. Because they begin to develop spiritual muscle. For those of us that have suffered, you know, another theme in the book of Philippians, Paul equates suffering to a form of fellowship with Jesus. He doesn't just say suffering like bad thing go away. He says, consider it a joy when you partake in the fellowship of the sufferings of Jesus. When the hardship comes, this is a form of identifying with God in a pretty powerful way. And God uses the sufferings of Jesus to make the world a better place. And the same way he can use our sufferings to make our lives and the world around us a better place. Because when we get to the other side of suffering, what happens is we, we have a growing confidence in God. 
we learn to trust more deeply in God. And oftentimes our pain, our struggles, once we have the, the hindsight and the perspective to see how God redeemed them, they often become a word of encouragement for somebody half of our age who deals with something very similar. They don't only shape our lives, but we then become, as, as we've gone our life experience, we become a, a person who can be relied upon and who can encourage and build up others who deal with the same struggles. We pass a different form of a baton, if you will, in the Christian faith. And so I want to say, if you are dwelling in past failure, know that failure has a purpose in life. Nobody, even look at Thomas Edison. I mean, I think it was like, what was it, 670 attempts before he found the light bulb. And when somebody said to him, like, hey, uh, you know, how does it feel to have failed 670 times? He said, I didn't fail 670 times. I figured out like 670 things that didn't work. And then I created the one thing that made the world amazing, light, right? If we are buried in past failure, we have got to stop dwelling in that. We have to learn from that. Hear me. But we have to turn our heads around and start looking at the finish line of God's future promises for your life. Failure shapes the future. Don't let it define your future. The second thing that people struggle with is some people have a history of regrets they wish they could change. They carry with them a guilty uh, laundry list of statements like this. You know, I wish I could go back and da 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 whatever it is. Maybe it's with a particular person. Maybe if you're on the other end of the spectrum with children, you say, I wish I would have been a better mom or dad in this area. I wish I would have been a better husband or wife. I wish I would have loved my parents like they deserved when they were here. I mean, there is no end, end, end to the way we can you know, retroactively look at these things. And the idea is like, if I could do it again, I would do all of this different. Now, please hear me here. The Bible is not saying, when Paul says, you know, don't focus on the past, he's not saying we shouldn't learn from those mistakes. He's not saying there are times uh, when we shouldn't seek forgiveness in the places where we've made those mistakes. Look, if we've wronged somebody, we have a moral obligation before God and that person to make that right. He's not saying forget it like that. If we've wronged somebody, we have to, in God's grace, make it right. What he is saying is, you have to grow in your wisdom so you avoid repeating them. Looking back can be healthy if we learn from the past experiences of life. However, I want to be very clear here. He is not saying you need to personally torture yourself over your past if you've repented of it and made it right until your death. That's not the point. In fact, that's why we have the cross, is so that we don't have to do that to ourselves. And this is exactly what we tend to do when we take our eyes off of Jesus. We pay a personal penance to ourselves on a regular basis. We dwell in the past because we have this innate need to be at peace. Most humans that are rational want peace in their lives. They want stability. We don't wake up saying, God, make my life miserable this week. We don't say that. We want, we want life to be sorted. Thus the little series we did over Christmas, finding joy, finding peace in troubled times. The innate desire of the human heart is stability. And when we lack it, we want, we want it fixed. And so one of the ways that people can... You know, it's a faux way, but nonetheless, it's a way that people pursue this. One of the ways they try to repent is by punishing themselves. And so if you live in past regret like this, you're only going to beat yourself down. You have to make it right. You have to learn. You have to press into God. But what I'm saying is, is if you're marred by past regrets, you have to turn your head around. You have to start looking at a different prize, a different finish line. Because what you'll see is that God can actually work through the past to make you a better person today. So don't deny him the ability to do that. Let him be the God of that circumstance, not yourself. Lastly, I'll say this in this area. Uh, maybe you're coming from the other side of the spectrum. 
you know, you're not a person who's proud. You're not a person who's at a place in your life now where, where the weight of life is what's keeping you from moving forward. Uh, maybe you're coming from the other side of the spectrum where your past years have been the mountaintop. Like, you're the person who kills it in everything you do. You don't make mistakes, rarely anyways. Everything you try or attempt, you've succeeded at. You know, we ha- there are these narratives in our lives, too. We have seasons where, like, it's just nothing but winning, right? And that can be just as dangerous. And so while it's true, past failures and regrets can plague God's people. Dwelling on our past successes, they can be just as dangerous. Again, I'm not saying don't celebrate them. I'm not saying don't be thankful for them. I'm just saying when the past success becomes the, the moniker for the future, we, we press the pause button in the progress of life. And I give you a perfect example of this. This is other, other places where Paul writes about this. I'll just give you the colloquial explanation. Um, in ancient Rome, when a victory, again, this is Paul's world, right? So Roman analogies, military analogies, these are all the kinds of things he's talking about in his epistles. And in ancient Rome, when a victorious general came home from battle, remember, Rome ruled the world at one point in history, they were often rewarded for their accomplishments by having public parades held in their honor. In fact, you can see there's an incredible amount of Roman influence in the United States of America. You can see in our, in our, our brighter spots in history, when our veterans come home from overseas conflicts and wars, we do the same thing. We have parades around the country to, to celebrate and to be thankful for what they've done and the sacrifices they made. This is a, a historical thing that, that nations have done for many, many years. And so it was very common for the generals that won these wars to be touted around these cities in chariots. Basically, they were, they were being celebrated. They were being subjected to the high praise of a thankful empire as they went out and conquered a people group or took a new piece of land. What's interesting, though, is most of the historical records show that as the generals did this, and there's ideas behind this in Scripture that, that say this, there's a slave behind the general speaking into their ear. There's a whispering that goes on into the ear of the general that says something along these lines. Glory is temporary. Glory is temporary. Glory is fleeting. And the point here is that it's very easy to get wrapped up in the wind. But the point of the general was to be thankful for the win, but the general always had another battle to fight. Always. And so there's this, this analogy that's used. It's a stark reminder that the Roman world can teach us that we should be thankful for today's success. But when it came to the, the general, they were not supposed to forget that tomorrow held another battle. There was a day that the chariot was used in a different application when it actually went back to the field of battle. And so unlike the other groups we just spoke about, some Christians can't grow in their faith today because they can't stop dwelling on the blessings and maybe sometimes even the hardships of what happened yesterday in our journeys with God. <clears throat> As a result, you get stuck in the middle. You live in nostalgia of how faithful you once were to God, of how great it was back in the 80s or the 90s or the early 2s. And you keep saying, like, I, I wish I could get back to that place, and I'm going to do that tomorrow. And the truth is that hardly if ever happens. Because you, you're finding your home in a place that no longer exists. And what's actually happened is, is you've become spiritually homeless. You are no longer rooted in reality. And so if this is you, if, if you can't move forward because you can't get over how great it was yesteryear, you have to know that there is still greatness in your path tomorrow. Because God has a purpose and a plan for your life. If this is you, turn your head around. And start looking at the finish line of a new day and a new hope in Jesus. There is a finish line we strive towards. And the implication of this text is we should always be moving towards it. So don't settle for the successes of yesterday. Relish in the fact that God has a story for your future. 
So if you found yourself in any of these spots I just mentioned today, the point here is to stop looking back. It's to fix your eyes on the prize of Jesus and to let him carry you out of the valley you're in. Because this is why Jesus dies for us. He comes to the earth to set us free from this bondage. He offers us his grace and his hope in all things so that we can live in freedom in life, not yoked to anything in the past. And this leads me to the last thing I want to share with you this morning. The point, the way we grow is, is looking towards the future. And this is exactly what Paul tells us in Philippians 3.14. If you want to grow in Jesus like this, in 2017, your heart must be solely focused on the prize of Christ. This is how we wrap up today. After he tells us what we shouldn't focus on, he says, listen, I press on, though, toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I win the prize by focusing towards the glory of my Father in heaven. That's how I get to the finish line. And so we learn one valuable truth from the Apostle Paul here. The key to Paul's growth, the key to our growth, is that his whole life revolves around the prize of knowing Jesus more deeply. This is the, this is what he, it's the medicine, you might say, to the sickness of, of paralysis in life. His life is defined, like so many other people who have loved God well, their life is defined by an intense pursuit of Jesus Christ. Intense doesn't mean creepy, it doesn't mean weird, it doesn't mean you're the odd Christian on the block, but it means when you think of life, you look to your Father in heaven, and you converse with him, and you let him speak into you and define who you are and where you're going. Paul's life is defined by an intense pursuit of Jesus. Everything he does and says is shaped by that relationship. And so we often look to people like Paul as heroes of the faith. And to a certain degree, we rightfully do this. Because Paul is integral in bringing the good news of Jesus to the New Testament world. There isn't a church like we have today without Paul. There isn't a restoration launched in 2010 without an Apostle Paul taking the gospel to the nations of the first century world 2,000 years ago. God used him in a powerful way. And on the heels of statements like this, if you are an inquisitive mind like me, we might say, well, why does Paul get a hero affirmation like this? Why does God uh, use Paul like this? And sure, we could say that it was his brilliant mind, that God said, you're brilliant, I'm going to use you. We could say that it was his uh, knowledge of theology and his understanding of culture. We could say that it was his ability to defend his faith with surgical precision. And don't get me wrong, all of those are things that are helpful. In fact, what you see in Paul's life is these become disciplines in his life. These are things that he recognizes are important to know. That's why we, we really encourage the spiritual disciplines here, knowing the word, praying, being in community. We could say that it was only for these reasons. God, uh, Paul had an acute ability for these things. Um, we could say that, but I don't think that that's right. Those are gifts and abilities that God uses, but they are not the foundation upon which God builds a ministry through him. They are tools you might consider that he uses after the foundation is built. You might recall, think about this, Paul was using all of those abilities before he even found Jesus to do what? Anybody remember what we read about in Acts? Before he was converting people to Jesus, he was killing those trying to convert to Jesus. So all his strengths and abilities are absolutely used to, to he's essentially trying to stop the plans of God. And so we have to be careful about saying it was Paul's skill that God used. Paul's kingdom effectiveness is enhanced, certainly, by his skills. But it is built on his intense desire to focus in and focus on the person of Jesus. Why does God use Paul? Because Paul wants to know God. And in this sense, that makes all of us great. It makes all of us a person who can be used mightily by God. 
You don't have to read Greek to change the world. You just have to want to know Jesus well. And then God will use you in, in powerful ways. And so the key to Paul's amazing life is his singular focus on Jesus. He learns the hard way, and he just told us about some of, some of them. There are many things you can choose to pursue in this life, and he gets everyone he goes after. He's the guy on, the, on the, the spectrum of the mountaintop. But he learns the hard way. None are as worthy or as meaningful as knowing Jesus with all of your heart, soul, and mind. His singular laser-like focus on Christ is the key to everything. And that presents a real problem for us today. Why, you might ask. Well, today we, we, have more, uh, we live in the age of sloppy spirituality, basically. We have more life help tools to focus on stuff than we have ever had in the course of human history. And it's problematic that for many Christians, these tools shape us more than the words of Jesus. Every one of us in this room right now has a million places you can go to for advice on how you can better your life. And some of them are very good and valid. I'm not knocking them all. I'm just saying uh, there are places we can go for better relationships, on how to become physically sustained, on how to get rich, on how to be spiritually fulfilled. Whatever it is, I guarantee you, whatever your need is, there is a book, probably a couple hundred of them, and likely a DVD series to go along with it to help you become whatever it is you're trying to be. And so what's happened is, is over the years, these options have greatly convoluted the intensely focused nature the Bible calls the Christian to have on Jesus. The first person we should go to for life change direction is him. And compounding this issue is that in our modern world, being scattered is what is in. Uh, belief hopping, church hopping, spirituality hopping. Hopping is like the norm. You know, flexing to and fro. I've said this before. What Paul talks about is this idea of, of always searching but actually never finding. That is what is in right now. And this tends to create what the Bible calls forms of godliness. Some that might even be Christian or quasi-Christian, but not Christian the way Jesus teaches us. And since our, our purpose today, we're not wrestling with doubt this morning. Today we're wrestling with how we grow in the pursuit of Jesus. We're going to be very pointed. We live in the age of sloppy spirituality. The era where people pick and choose a little bit of everything. They're primarily Christian with some corrective measures they made to the things they don't like about Christianity. That's why they follow Jesus like here, but not there. Believing like this is convenient because people create gods in their own image. One who is tailor-made to serve their own needs. But I'm telling you, you can't grow in Jesus like we're talking about today if we're not pursuing Jesus as he calls us to pursue him. If we're not in the Word, if we're not in a church family long enough to grow and be accountable to anything in life. So let's contrast the sloppiness of the world that we live in with the kind of faith that Paul teaches us about. The, the, this idea of a soul fixation on the prize of Jesus. For Paul, his faith is not a shotgun blast. It's like a sniper bullet. It isn't built on loose beliefs or sloppy spirituality. That doesn't mean he's not wrestling with things or questioning them. But he is wrestling and questioning things to grow in his singular focus on his Savior. It's built on a laser-like focus of knowing one particular thing. He wants to be in Jesus, he wants to know Jesus, he wants to grow in his righteousness in Jesus, he wants to experience the grace of Jesus. He wants to, as we've already talked about, experience the power of his resurrection and participate in the work of his suffering. You don't say to God, God, I'm ready to suffer for you, unless you're focused on Jesus. It doesn't happen. Look at the verbs he uses here. He's running after the prize. He's straining, pressing on twice. The idea here is that this is a person who has disciplined his life for the sole purpose of crossing the victory line. And the victory line is Christ. And so his life shows us that genuine Christianity, is, it can be marked by many things, but the root of all these things is a desire to know Jesus. It's marked by a life that has been overtaken by God, a life that has been reoriented around the ways of God. Our faith is not a hobby. 
It's not an additional layer of knowledge. It's not a pursuit of doctrine, although all those things are tools God will use. If we use those tools correctly, they will build the foundation I'm speaking of. But if we pursue these things disconnected from the foundation, we will build a faith in our lives that is one contrary to the one Jesus wants for us. Pursuing Jesus is a, it's a complete rewiring of life. That's why the Bible uses this idea of being born again. We don't really speak that in our culture today, but it's talking about a whole new you. It's seeing the life and your life in the world, not the way you want to see them, but the way God sees them. And so I'll leave you with this. For some people, when they think of Christianity, they see it as a faith. They see it as a worldview. Um, when I was in school, we debated it as a philosophy, and I loved that element of it. Some people simply see it as a religion. And to a certain extent, all of those descriptions are accurate. But they are incomplete when they are separated from the foundation of what Christianity is really built upon. A passionate desire to know and be known by our God, who reveals himself to us in Jesus. We just celebrated a whole month of that. Christianity is all about the passionate pursuit of a prize. And if you want to grow in 2017, you have to know that prize is Christ. So as we set into this new year, I want to ask you to pray about resolving your heart to focus on Jesus in a new way. If you're here today and you've never believed in Christ, maybe this is the time to do that. If you have questions about that, let us help you figure those out. As a church, let's follow Paul's example of straining, of pressing on and laboring for the cause of Christ. Let's not ever forget that we need the strength of our God as we do this. Please don't hear me say like we're doing this on our own. But there's a tension Paul lays out in this passage. We run the race in the power and the authority of our Father. Your legs got to move. That's what he's saying. But your legs only move because of God. To get to the finish line, it requires the God of heaven working in our lives and us letting him work in our lives. And Paul tells us this in Philippians 1.6. I've already preached on this. There's a whole talk on it months ago online if you, could, if you want to listen to it. But I'll say this. If you're here saying, I don't even know how I'm going to move forward, then I want to leave you with what Paul says. Be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Your legs will move even when they can't because God has promised he's going to get you to the end. This verse matters. It matters in light of what we've spoken about today. Because when, and I use the operative word there, when, when the race gets tough, when you want to quit running, when you fall down and bruise yourself or strain your muscles, when you look back so much that you, you can't see the future anymore, when those things happen, you need to know somebody is trying to speak to you. You have a God in heaven who's trying to speak to you. He is trying to whisper into the ears of your heart that he is there for you and he wants to move you forward. And what he says to you is simply this, the race was begun by him, you will run it together, and in his grace, like so many men and women who have loved Christ before us, he will get you to the finish line. So let your ultimate hope and your growth and progress of this year not be your own strength. Use your own strength, but know that ultimately your Father in heaven will get you to the place that he wants you to go. He will complete in you the good work he began in you and in his son Jesus. And I pray that is the battle cry of your heart as we move into this year, and certainly as we move into communion and this time of response and reflection that we have in our closing minutes here this morning. Now, if you would pray with me as we move to the table. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a new year, a new opportunity, uh, a new ability to get to know you, 
to know the people in our body and to work and labor for your kingdom, God. There are so many amazing people that make up the body of restoration. And I pray, Lord, as we think about these things, that you would bless their efforts, their vocations, their families. God, I just pray that this would be a year where because of our focus on you, we would experience fruit like no other. May this be the year, Father, that our pursuit of you truly shapes and reshapes who we are in you. And I pray now, Lord, as we have this space for reflection, that you would use the great sacrifice of your son Jesus to to just root our hearts in you and your goodness and your grace. May we leave this place knowing that, that you have not, nor will you ever forget us. The table of Christ's death really reminds us of the, the permanent presence you have in our life. In Jesus' name we pray this morning. Amen.